Hey, this is Don from Mayleaf, and welcome to another episode of Tea Lifted Conversations. This is our series of informal conversations, which we sit and have over tea about a wide variety of topics. Sharing conversations over tea has a unique capacity to expose and hopefully dissolve tribalism and engender free, uninhibited conversation. And I hope that this series provides some interesting viewpoints and ideas which engage, entertain, and inspire you. In today's conversation, I'm chatting with a very old school friend, Sasha Khan, who's a CBT psychotherapist. And I thought I'd talk about psychology against the backdrop of the psychological impacts of coronavirus and the global reaction to this virus. Sasha has a master's in cognitive behavioral therapy and has been a practicing CBT psychotherapist for about 20 years. He used to work at the nationally renowned institution called The Priory in the UK and specializes in all aspects of adult mental health, including anxiety disorders, depression, post-traumatic disorders, and schizophrenia. Sasha has also had training in hypnotherapy and further training in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Sasha, how's it going? Yeah, I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Got up early. I had an early start with my daughter, but you know, that's, that's the, the rules for parenthood, as you know. Of course, yeah. You drinking a tea? I am. I have a cup of builders in front of me. So, I feel yeah. very, very sorry for you. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Yeah. Well, I've <clears> run out of all your lovely tea, so this is all I've got left. Um, I'll have to imagine that it's a, a fancy tea. Well, I'm drinking a 2020 First Pluck Long Jing, one of the rarest <laughs> teas out there. Sorry, I'm not trying to gloat, but you know the, the the point here is that these conversations are meant to be a conversation person to person sharing some pinnacle tea and having a good conversation. But obviously with lockdown, we can't do that at the moment. That's right. So <clears throat> I'm afraid you're stuck with your builder's brew, but, um, but I'm, I'm sure it will still stimulate the mind a little bit and hopefully lift this conversation. And what I'd like to talk about with you, Sasha, is talking about the, um, the psychological ramifications of uh, fear, of isolation in general, but specifically, of course, related to the current situation uh, that's happening with the COVID-19 pandemic and everybody in lockdown. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, you know, the uh, psychological impacts of uh, this across the globe. I mean, this is what's remarkable is that this is a global phenomenon. This is a this is something it's, it's almost an experiment that's happening across the world. It's going to be so fascinating to look back and see all the studies that are going to be generated from this uh, this period in history. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So looking at those psychological impacts um, and then um, obviously we'd want to try to turn this into something positive. We want to look at how we can reframe any negative psychological impacts to try to emerge from this with a positive psychology. And I hope that you can even give some practical techniques, albeit short ones, just simple techniques that people could just incorporate into their day-to-day -day starting right now to generate a more positive psychology. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. Let's, let's do that. Um, plenty to talk about then. There is certainly a lot to talk about. Let's, let's first talk about the psychological impacts of uh, the pandemic. Um, but, you know, I guess what we're going to be talking about now um, filters across to all aspects of fear, anxiety, stress, isolation, wouldn't you say? 
Absolutely right. Yes. I mean, the situation is a perfect example of, you know, what we call a trigger in cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, it would be unusual for um, anyone to not be experiencing some changes to their internal world, their internal functioning. Um, And yeah, I, I think anxiety is probably the main emotion we, we would be wanting to talk about today. Well, anxiety is, we, uh, psychologists and psychotherapists see that as a, um, as a negative emotion. So it's seen as being different from fear. So fear is more cognitive, what's happening in our, our mind, um, various thoughts, ideas, images we might have. Um, but the anxiety is, is kind of seen as being the problem. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess so. So anxiety is more sort of the uh, the condition that is created from a, a state of perpetual fear. That's right. And so um, one way of looking at anxiety is that we, as human beings, we're not particularly strong, say, as compared to an elephant. So our skin isn't very thick. We don't have much in the way of claws and teeth. Um, so we tend to be biologically quite skittish, you know, kind of like pathetic, thin skinned animals. That yeah, that's right. So, you know, I think most of us have seen those pro- the TV programs where, where you see the meerkats and one of them rears up on its hind legs. And well, what happens? All of the others do the same thing. So we're also kind of pack animals. We work well together. Um, and so being separated as we are in in this lockdown it it really is taking us away from our basic nature and that's you know that's can be very very damaging um Mm. yeah interesting so you're talking about sort of the meerkats in their sort of signaling techniques um and 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 as humans we as pack animals we we use similar signaling techniques but since we're isolated from each other the only signaling that we have is uh, our lovely media which is uh, throwing 24 7 fear down our our throats whenever they possibly can because it it obviously helps their uh, their 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 views um and it's interesting here <clears throat> because i mean everybody knows about the placebo response but uh maybe less people know about the nocebo response right which yeah. is obviously when you are told bad news or you're given a fearful information uh, it's more likely that it's going to uh result in damage to your health so if you're told that you know an operation is probably not going to go well then statistics show and there have been plenty of studies on this show that you know your uh, reaction, your body's reaction um, is is definitely testable. You can see that people have uh, less good outcomes when the bedside manner of the doctor is negative. And I'm interested because it seems to me that we're having now a global 24-7 nocebo response. Mm-hmm. And I really wonder how different it would have been if we had handled if we'd reframed the uh, the narrative a little bit more with a, with a positive bedside manner, if you like, where the doctors maybe had studied medical NLP and understood the the power of words, and and as somebody who's a psychotherapist and also trained in hypnotherapy, what are your thoughts regarding that? Regarding the way that uh, this uh, 
this pandemic has been portrayed in terms of people's psychological and physical health? Well, I think it's, as you pointed out, it's in the nature of our mainstream media to sort of promulgate the doom porn <laughs> and to, 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 to uh, because that gets views, that gets ratings. Um, you know, it, it hooks, it hooks our, our, you know, as we described, this tendency towards being a bit skittish, a bit anxious. It kind of amps that up. And then what happens is, well, people click for more of the same. Um, and so it becomes kind of self-perpetuating. Um, yeah, in terms of this, the nocebo effect, yeah, that, I think that's a really good way of, um, of looking at it. And um, yeah, very much our, our reality is shaped by our, by our expectations. Um, so yeah, you, you, were, you were alluding to various studies on, on the nocebo effect and it might be useful to, for our listeners to give an example of that. Um, yeah, so um, in a study um, in which people had uh, back pain, they were um, asked to do various physio exercises and there were about 20 people in the study and they were split into two groups. Um, and in one group, they were told these exercises may cause some pain. And in the other group, they weren't, they weren't told um, anything like that. And of course, what happened is in the group that was primed to be thinking about pain and to be cautious, I suppose, in their movements, that, that, that created a painful experience for them. Um, so that's, that's, that's a kind of one example of, of hundreds. And, you know, of course, um, you know, we've all heard of a voodoo curse. And um, in fact, you know, those curses do seem to work in certain countries where the belief system is such that they, they truly believe that um, if they have a curse that they will, they will die. And the expectation brings about the reality. So, and, which is uh, which yeah. is so so fundamental to CBT, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely right. Of course, absolutely right. Um, yeah, it, and the cognitive therapy, as distinct from cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive therapy is all about um, how our view of our our world, our interpretation of things, shapes our our reality. Um, yeah. And so if we think um, we're going to fail, there's no point in trying. Well, our, our, our world sort of starts to fit um, our beliefs. Um, and, you know, maybe that's what's happening now with the media. I mean, one of the definitions of anxiety is that as human beings, we tend to overestimate the threat or danger in a particular situation. And we do that in two ways. We overestimate the the probability of something bad happening and the severity of it. So something really bad is going to happen um, and it's very likely to happen. And then underneath that, we also tend to underestimate our ability to cope in, in those situations. And I think the media is very much pushing this idea of, you know, really, really bad things are happening. They're going to carry on happening. And, you know, there's no, there's no chance of, of them not happening. Um, and there isn't a great deal of, of hope um, um, that not many messages about, you know, how one can foster 
resilience, uh, internal strength, and and positive messages, um, yeah. which is a, which is which is you know that's it's almost as if the the way that things are portrayed in the in the news um, is designed to create anxiety and fear. Um, right, <clears throat> and and so there's an argument to say that that the creation of that anxiety and fear. Um, is designed in order to make people act in the way that you want them to act. Now, we can talk as much as we want about the motives behind that. Sure. But let's sure. assume that it's all benevolent and benign. Sure. Um, and that the motives are literally saving the NHS, saving the health service, etc., saving lives, etc. So the idea being that they need to create this sense of fear and anxiety in order to mm-hmm. uh, force people um, to... Uh, take uh, to to take the medicine that they're being told to take, you know, whatever that being. They stay at home. Or- yeah, that's right. And you know the, the that message: stay at home, save lives. You know, it's it fits with how you would pattern hypnotic language. You know, it's pithy. You've got the alliteration there, um, and you know it's it, it's something that will um, go in, go into the subconscious and and gather. Um, energy around it, so to speak. This use of fear and anxiety to gain control, benevolent or, or, you know, subterfuge and, you know, uh, conspiracies or whatever you want to talk about the agendas. Let's put that to a side, aside for a second. There is a, there is an argument that they're using it for that purpose. However, if you look at, for example, the Swedish approach, where they seem to have more of an approach where we will give you some information, we'll give you the facts, but you are intelligent, sovereign people, and you need to take enough responsibility for yourself um, and for your actions, you know, for the wider community and sort of give a bit of trust to the people rather than sort of force feeding fear in order to get them to do something. Do you see parallels um, in your uh treatments in your uh, sessions, you know, the difference that you get in terms of a result, um, in terms of empowering people to make their own decisions and have sovereignty over those decisions and sort of giving them facts versus giving them fear in order to get them to do something. I'm just saying that because a lot of doctors, for example, I think are taught that the same technique, right, which is uh, tell people the scary news in order to get them to either change their lifestyle or take a medicine or whatever it is. So what are your thoughts on, 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 on that? Well, that's a really good, um, that's a good question. And I think, you know, maybe some doctors do try to um, encourage people to act in a certain way by telling them the worst case scenario. But then, as we know, you've had the warnings on cigarette packets for years that, you know, it causes cancer and you've got those graphic pictures. And what effect does that have on, on smoking behavior? Well, none. So, you know, I, thought, I mean, if, if it worked, then I would be doing the same thing with my clients, wouldn't I? I'd be telling them, you know, if you don't do this, your life's going to hell in a handbasket. Um, I think, yes, of course, looking at the worst case scenario, it can be helpful, but you need to look at it um objectively, calmly, and to then start thinking it through with compassion and kindness. So when we ask ourselves, in classic um, 
cognitive behavioral therapy question is, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? And, and then if we can envisage dealing with that horrible situation, then, then, we're in a better, um, then we're in a better place, I think. You know, so, I mean, I, I routinely work with um, my clients on um, exercises where we might consider the worst case scenario. So people who have health anxiety, and obviously that's sometimes exacerbated now, not always though, which is, which is interesting. Um, I'm, you know, they'll often say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm scared that I've got a brain tumor, you know, and they'll go to the doctor, they'll have multiple tests. They, um, you know, they don't have anything of the sort. Um, and they're constant, but they're constantly running from this fear of death. So sometimes we have to look death in the face and say, well, okay, let's look at that. You know, yeah. and that can be upsetting, but it's it's empowering. I think, you know, we're often running away from um, our fear, and that doesn't help. We need to kind of face it head on. Whether that's you know, if we're afraid of cats, we need to get up close and personal with with cats and realize that we're stronger than we think. Um, or if it's death, you know, we need to kind of look at that. You know, if the fear is well you know, I'm, I'm going to die from some horrible disease or COVID-19. Well, okay, well, let's think that through. Let's suppose you are going to die next year. What are you going to make of your life in the meantime? You know, how are you going to set things straight? What do you need to do so that if, that if this horrible thing happened, you could feel that you lived a, a, more of a rich, full and meaningful life? Yeah. What's interesting is there seems to be a f uh, few responses to a fearful trigger. Um, and one of them is escapism, right? Run away, and that might be turning to sort of alcohol or, or you know, uh, try to block out the fear th through uh, some sort of activity. Um, and I, I don't know whether or not that works, but I would assume that in many cases it doesn't. Then th you've got the second response, <clears throat> which is to allow that fear to somehow sort of, you try and shuffle it away from your mind, but it sort of embeds and becomes this, this sensation of anxiety, which persists and can cause, you know, a lot of uh, unhappiness and also health problems, as we know, that will, you know, that sort of perpetual state of anxiety will, will, will impact your immune system, cause inflammation, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it sort of exacerbates, you know, yeah. health decline. Absolutely. Um, and, and, but that's a sort of, that seems to me, and maybe I'm generalizing here, but it seems to be the most common response is it's sort of like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. So I'm just going to sit with it yes. almost like sort of yeah. bury it and it will come up now and again, usually at two in the morning, keep me awake with circ circular thoughts or whatever it is. And then there's the third, third side of it, which is, I, I think what you're alluding to, which is to just sort of externalize it and say, okay. Let's look at this fear. Let's let's properly assess it, and let's uh, understand it objectively. Yes, and also try to experience it, almost live it. Yes. you know, so that Absolutely. you can say, right, was it as is it as bad as you think? And then, of course, in the case of death, that seems quite extreme. But mm -hmm. I always sort of, you know, because the fear of death is pervasive, right? Um, and you know, it's 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 probably the sort of common denominator fear that everyone has. But when you start to sort of take, when you start to actually ask silly questions that sound silly, but aren't that silly, like, 
what does it matter if you die, actually? Sure, yeah. You know, like, yeah. how would, you know, who does that matter to? Uh, if it matters to you, but you're dead and you're no longer here, then what's, you know, I mean, you, you sort of, you, you force the actual confrontation of those questions. Yeah, um, and, and, and I guess, you know, it's, it's looking at what death might mean to different people. And, you, you know, you could ask them, okay, well, imagine you're dying. Okay, talk me through that experience. You know, not the kind of conversation you want to have at a dinner party. But, you know, but in therapy, you know, we ask these questions and they do seem a bit strange and silly, but maybe because, um, you know, there's a level of embarrassment about in talking about these things i think a lot of people have been trained that you don't talk about these things you know it's it's sort well, of, of course, like a, that's right but we need we need to and and we don't in our society you know um we we only seem to be kind of uh um talking about death or face with it when we're going to somebody's funeral um and then all of a sudden it's it's kind of in your face and then you know, as soon as they're in the ground or they've been turned to ash, then we sort of kind of turn away from it and get back to life, which is, you know, I suppose that's one way of doing things, but not all cultures are like that. Um, but, but just going back to what we were touching on before is, well, what does death mean to you? Is it, is it the death you're afraid of or is it the dying, for example? Um, and sometimes it's more about pain, you know, people anticipating some slow, drawn-out, painful death. Um, uh, but other times, it's people might have some um, latent idea that they're going to hell, for example, or some, some variant, some variant of that, even if they're not religious. Um, or they might fear total oblivion. Um, wow. Wow. You know, even though even though intellectually they know that, well, they wouldn't be around to experience that. Sure. So, you know, I've worked with plenty of people who profess no faith in um, in, a, in a God, but they still fear this idea of, well, what's going to happen afterwards? You know, what if there's nothing? Well, you wouldn't be around to experience that. And they kind of know that intellectually, but that doesn't uh, that doesn't stop the fear. So what do you do in that situation? Because that seems like a very difficult one to get around. Well, I think uh, to, to meditate on that and to sort of stay with that idea. And, um, and um, what often happens is, as with, as with, as with kind of any uh, uh, stimulation, is we habituate to it. Okay. Um, so by habituation... Um, I mean that we get used to it. So it's a bit like jumping into a, um, a very cold uh, lake. Initially, it's very bracing, um, but then the body kind of gets used to it. And that's sometimes what happens with, with fear, is you kind of sit with this fear and then you, and gradually we kind of get used to it and we get bored with it. <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah, and then we move on to something else. Um, you know, you see that a lot, I see that a lot when I'm treating, um, people who have phobias, you know, they can be absolutely petrified of spiders and, uh, water heights. Um, and you know, if you encourage them to stay with the fear, to move closer to the feared object, 
you know, that quite often that anxiety dissipates. You know, they realize there's nothing to be afraid of. And they, in, and they are kind of bored with it. There's very rarely any surprise or jubilation, right? They just seem to be bored with it. You know, it's not the, well, one way of looking at it is it's not the spiders we're afraid of. It's not the, the you know, the heights. It's not the COVID-19. It's our internal response. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about, because you're, you're a CBT uh, uh, psychotherapist. So a lot of people uh, may have heard of CBT therapy, uh, but they may not know the sort of foundational sort of approach that CBT has. As a, as a CBT psychotherapist, could you sort of give us a, the, the headlines, you know, the, the, the dummies yeah. version of it. Sure. Okay. So CBT um, uh, refers to a few different kinds of therapy, but broadly speaking, we're trying to look at unhelpful patterns of thinking, uh, feeling and behavior. We're trying to identify what those are and to be clear um, in such a way that we can work out what may be maintaining our problems or making them worse. And then we look at changing um, things in various ways. And um, we do that in, in working collaborative, collaboratively with our clients and trying to, you know, put some of their thoughts on trial, for example. You know, so if people are, are, are feeling anxious and they say, well, look, this is going to go wrong, that's going to go wrong, we might kind of examine that whether or not it's true. So it's really trying to look at in the first instance, being more realistic in our thinking. Right. Because um, quite often we, we blow things out of proportion. We see only the negative in a certain situation or we disqualify positive aspects of our experience. Um, we can be very self-critical. We can be very critical of other people in the world. And it's looking at trying to see if we're doing this habitually and then seeing, well, can we change that? But this is the key here is it's, it's about sort of uh, belief systems, right? It's about, it's about the, th- the, the, the way that you interpret external events. The event is not causing a consequence. It has to be interpreted by your thinking. And therefore, if you reframe your thinking, you can, uh, you can have, achieve more positive uh, consequences. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, and it's not a new idea. And, um, you know, the founders of uh, cognitive therapy, um, um, Aaron Beck and, and uh, Albert Ellis, you know, they, they do um, pay tribute to, you know, other traditions that are, you know, sometimes thousands of years old. So, um, you know, Buddhism, perhaps one of the first examples that really echoed sort of what the Greeks and the Stoic philosophers um, said later on that, you know, that um, um, we aren't disturbed by things, but by the view that we we have of those things, you know, how we interpret those things. Absolutely. Yeah. And when I first, uh, when I first had a a session with you, when you were still studying, uh, you you, uh, gave me the very catchy ABC do you want to tell people about the ABC? Yeah, so A is for activating event, um, and that's you know the trigger. What happens just before you experience um, an episode of anxiety or depression, some other negative emotion, or um, an unhelpful behaviour? 
Um, and triggers could be all kinds of things. Um, you know, can be real. So, for example, job loss, divorce, bereavement, you know, um, viral pandemic. Um, <laughs> or it could be, and it can be imagined. So, for example, you know, actually imagining oneself as dying from, from this horrible uh, disease at some point in the future. Um, right. Yeah. And so then, you can create your own activating event. Yeah, that's right. So we can, right. and we do that all the time. You know, that um, I think it was Montaigne that said, you know, my life has been full of troubles, most of which never happened. So, <laughs> you know, we're really good at, at kind of imagining horrible future events and then also dragging up the past and going over that. Um, okay, so we talked about the A and the ABC, but we're going to go to C and that'll become obvious in a minute why we're doing that. So C is for consequences and these can be behaviors emotions physical symptoms or th- th- thought processes um, and then I want just want to talk a little bit about what we call AC thinking and then we'll get to the B in a minute so AC thinking sort of connects at the activating event with the consequences and it's very much in the language that we use naturally so we'll say things like you're making me angry so you know Maybe you're shouting at me, and that's the activating event. And then the C there for me is anger, or I'm depressed because I lost my job. So the job loss is the activating event. And then the C, the consequence, is the depressed mood. And what's going on there is we're missing something out, and that's what you were talking about before, which is, well, it's really our interpretation of events, what's happening, whether that's external or internal, that's going to determine perhaps you know how i'm thinking feeling and behaving so um, we probably know this is true because not everybody responds in the same way to the same situation so why are some people calm when they're facing a job loss Mm. um you know why does why are some people less aggressively angry than others um and so part of this model is thinking well maybe it's to do with how they're interpreting those events, how they're talking to themselves about those events, the story they're telling themselves about those events. And then if that's true, well, maybe we can do the, we can help ourselves by learning to come up with a story that's a bit more helpful. And the evidence is that that works. If we learn to talk to ourselves in a, in a way that is more supportive, compassionate, um, uh, that can be really helpful and can really help with all kinds of problems that we have. Sure. Okay, so let's bring it back to this situation here, right? Uh, we've talked about the importance of working on belief systems, uh, your <laughs> way of thinking, of reframing um, scenarios or activating events to try to emerge with more positive psychology. I'm going to sort of list to you some of the Uh, I would say, negatives of this uh, pandemic. And we can maybe talk about them for a little bit. And then I think it would be nice to move on to what would be the reframing um, of of them. So, for example, um, obviously, we've talked about it already, the fear and stress of getting ill, right? I mean, this has been hyped to to the absolute. I mean, I can't imagine how much higher it can get with all of this 24-7 news, right? 
this fear and stress, which is going to be embedded in people, even coming out of lockdown, it's going to be embedded in people potentially. Also, the fear and stress that comes from a, a crashed economy. Yes, um, you know, yeah. which is which is going to be a, a huge issue moving forwards. You know, uh, and you know, in my view, is going to dwarf the the impacts of of the actual virus itself. Is is how uh, is the soci- is society going to cope with the emotional and psychological uh, effects of a of a crashed economy, global economy? Then you've got the isolation of lockdown and the loneliness that that has uh, you mm-hmm. know um, brought about. Um, You've got also relationship issues um, because, you know, locked 24-7 in a house with uh, your partner or your, you know, in a broken family or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We know that there's an increase in uh, uh, domestic abuse, potentially an increase in child abuse uh, and, and just sort of the arguments and, you know, being locked 24-7 with a partner certainly will reveal a lot about your relationship. So you've got relationship issues coming forwards. I think that also just the fear moving forwards in terms of social closening, you know, are we going to forever feel that uh, we are uh, somehow being close to someone may lead to contamination? Uh, It'd be interesting to hear your thoughts regarding OCD and cleanliness. You know, I guess the hand washers out there are all sort of laughing, going, well, I told you so. Um, But, you know, how how are people going to react to social closing? I heard also that uh, people who have actually uh, had the virus, of of which probably there are many people who didn't realize they had, but the people that have that know about it, um, a lot of people have been found to have 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 a, a very sort of low self image. They feel contaminated. They feel like they they can't emerge into society because somehow they've been contaminated with the virus. And then finally, the psychology of what has what is becoming more of a nanny state or a police state. You know, with the controls regarding regarding lockdown, the controls that have been uh, placed upon us because rightly or wrongly, again, a different discussion using fear and anxiety as a, as a technique to to make sure that we we follow the narrative the psychology behind that how that's going to affect people in terms of what they think is the new normal in terms of uh, you know control and privacy and all of those things there's so many different psychological elements and i've just thrown a, a huge long list at you we, <laughs> yeah we could pick talk and choose about, pick and pick yeah, and choose which could, ones you want to talk okay, about okay sure yeah i mean we could talk about um, any one of those subjects for a, a long period of time. Um, yeah, let's talk I mean, about OCD hand washing just for for a, okay, for a brief. Sure, because yeah, I'm sure you've dealt sure. with a lot of people. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, OCD is very common. About two percent of the population have have a um, obsessive compulsive disorder, and it is a profoundly disabling condition um, and can be incredibly draining and time consuming and. Uh, contamination OCD, I think, is what you're talking about. So people f- um, have a, f- a, a an internal sense that even though intellectually they know their hands are clean, they've been washing their hands, you know, for past five minutes. It just doesn't feel clean, and they need to keep doing it. And so their their brain is kind of locked, and yeah, v- very very damaging, disabling condition. Uh, but as you mentioned, you said, well, you know, maybe they feel vindicated now people are uh, washing their hands. Um, um, but, you know, probably not um, because, you know, they, they can see the, 
fantastical nature of their own their own problem. You know, they're often painfully aware of the fact that it's irrational, but that doesn't help. You know, and it highlights how we're not really rational beings. You know, we're emotional beings predominantly, and and this is a good, good example of of that. But do you think that uh, the uh, the fact that you know now everyone's talking about contamination and you know contactless, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, do you think that that is going to generate a whole new wave of of people out there who who develop this sort of uh, OCD or you know obsessive cleanliness, or do you think that that is just a natural artifact or you know of certain people, and it's not going to increase or decrease according to this uh, according to this situation? Yeah, I mean that's a good um, that's a really good question. I would imagine for younger people that. Um, you know, only uh, uh, kind of, you know, under, uh, children on the age of 10, 10, for example, if they're going shopping with their parents and they see other people behaving in this way, then that's bound to have an impact. Right. And if, if they're already of tender conscience, people with OCD are said to be of tender conscience, so they're sensitive people, then that may impact them. That might, that might be what we call a critical incident. And people kind of see everyone behaving in this very, very cautious fashion. Um, yeah, that could certainly impact them and maybe make them more prone to, for example, OCD. Yeah, this is what I mean. It's going to be f- so fascinating to see the the effects of this uh, this moment in history in twenty years' time. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I was interested by the language you were using because you were talking about socializing um but then you were using this word closening which i'd never heard before and i thought you know wow we're really we're really having to come up with new words for what's going on and perhaps i don't know perhaps we shouldn't be doing that perhaps we should be reinforcing the old words and just call it socializing rather than closening i don't know what you think about that i don't mean to be <clears throat> no i i i agree I, no no absolutely i i think that it's 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 the, the the sort of elastic band thing, you know, it's sort of like we're being stretched apart with this this term social distancing that just going back to socializing is going to feel like social closening. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Like absolutely. just being able to stand within two meters of somebody within a meter, being able to hug somebody, uh, you know, shake hands with a stranger. You know, I wonder, I wonder how, I wonder how quickly we will fall back into that or if we're forever going to be changed as a society um, in terms of our socializing behavior. Um, and it would be interesting to, to, to sort of see what kind of, you know, ha- how that changes the, the, the whole psychology of a society, the, the way we behave. Mm. Well, I think as human beings, we do have, as you pointed out, this need for social contact. And I think, I well maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but I think that'll win out. You know that we'll we'll realise we do need to shake hands with people. We do need to look them in the eye. We do need to not be afraid of um, getting contaminated by them because that's you know it's not good for us. That and it's going to lead to a fear that's worse than than the, than the disease. I think. Um, so yeah, I, I I I I kind of hold out hope for for humanity. So do I. So do I. I, I, I. This is all about trying to, as you say, face all of these things and, and look at them and see, 
you know, just expose them because the people need to understand that it, it's going to be weird, right? It is going to be strange when you, I mean, going to a, a club or going to a pub or going to a bar, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel different. Um, and we need to sort of, we need to address that. I mean, just leaving the house, right? Uh, for a lot of people. Uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about isolation and loneliness um, and, and how that may, have, may be affecting people. Yeah, I mean, I think old people who've been, you know, strongly encouraged to really isolate, um, you know, I do really fear for their for their health and and safety because you know they're not having any any kind of physical contact. And well, we know that you know if you have a dog or a cat and you you don't give it any physical contact, well, kind of you know gets really sick and dies. Um, and so we know oh, from many studies, isn't it? There's many, many studies, studies regarding, yeah. you know, longevity and the centennials and all the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. You so, social contact is one of the, it's probably the, I've, I've heard that it is the number one, uh, sort of contributory factor to early decline of, uh, of, of health and, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, death is in elderly is, is lack of social contact. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. Yeah. I'm not too sure about the, the stats. I'd have to check it out, but yeah, some sources say, well, that's, it's like smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. So yeah, can, can be absolutely devastating. Um, yeah. And I guess that's a question that will be asked with the benefit of hindsight, you know, was it, did we, did we need to, engage in the level of um, social distancing that we did. And I think the jury's, the jury's still out with that, as it is on many things. Um, but we've been living with viruses since, um, you know, well, for as long as we've existed. And, I believe, you know, I think I believe that the body is contains trillions of viruses within it. So, you know, perhaps we should be looking at things from that angle. Yeah, I mean, I think that there, there is a sort of general and it is it is very general uh, feeling of there's us and then there's the pathogen. Um, I think that a lot of people are less sort of uh, aware of viruses and the fact that we have, as you say, trillions of viruses circulating in us um, uh, regularly. Um, and from listening to the media, you would have thought that we are virus free and this one little virus getting in us is, is going That's to be right. the death knell for yeah. us. But one thing that we certainly can do is, as you say, frame it in the context of history. You know, we have been dealing with viruses as a civilization, as a human population for thousands and thousands of years. And of course, there have been very bad pandemics and a lot of people have died. I'm not, you know, suggesting otherwise, but, you know, we do need to adapt to it. And I think that it's unfortunate that the narrative, going back to the psychology side of it, the narrative which is being portrayed by the media is very little about, as, as you termed it before, like actually looking at the fear in a in the right context, looking at it in the context of other illnesses and in the context of other diseases, in the context of history, looking at these, you know, also the sort of manipulation or the use of statistics and figures. We know any, any statistician will tell you that you can make numbers look in many different ways, right? Depending on how you frame it and, you know, what parameters you use. But sort of just generally looking at all of these things 
with a mindset of we want to make sure that the psychology of the population is being impacted in a way that is going to help them move forwards rather than paralyze them. So let's talk about that. What would be the reframing here that you would use for, for various different issues that we talked about in order to allow people to emerge with more positive psychology and, and not even emerge, but right now deal with the emotions and the, and the, the negative psychology that they may be uh, dealing sure. with now? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a good question. And obviously, I'm mostly work with individuals. And so it would be trying to work out where, where you're at at the moment, because I mean, if you're very, if you're very depressed or you are um, being assailed um, um, with something like OCD, then it's really about addressing that and kind of, you know, really trying to see if you can ameliorate that, that unnecessary suffering. Um, so trying to put a positive frame on things if we're at minus five is probably not not the best thing to do uh, try and do and it's all about trying to well trying to survive and addressing that um but how you know if we're not sort of hugely panicked anxious um angered depressed about this there's plenty of things we can do and you know hundreds of suggestions i could give you i mean the first thing to do would be um, to try and think about the possibility of something good coming from this and just seeing if you can spend time with that question and think about, well, yeah, is there anything good that can come out of this? Am I, am I capable of um, doing something in a different way? Is there something that I can appreciate a bit more in my life? Because I think we've all had a lot of time to to kind of contemplate our navel, so to speak. But, you know, a lot of people have been talking about really appreciating the fact that the sun's been shining, that they can see the birds um, uh, in, the, in the trees and just kind of feeling more in touch with, with nature, I think, which has been flourishing since we've had this, this lockdown. So that would be something to try and um, cultivate, I suppose, is an appreciation of nature and our, our part in the universe um yes you know, yeah so kind of so looking, sort up of at, looking up at the stars and feeling feeling thankful for being alive you know even though we're going through a very difficult time well i mean you know it's it's a it's certainly something that we've seen before isn't it when you are faced with an imminent threat or when you're faced with uh, danger, it sort of puts into focus the value of your life, the value of what you have. Yes. And, uh, and especially, I, I would guess that that is amplified when it is a community, when you're sharing that with a community, let alone sharing that with the world. Sure. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is certainly a positive reframing there, which is we are having a shared experience that people talk about how people were happy during the Blitz, for example, right? Because mm -hmm. there was this shared uh, experience, a shared enemy, I would say. But also, I think more important than that is just a shared experience of going through something together. Now, of course, with lockdown, that is, uh, that is affected, uh, is not going to be in the same way as it was in the Blitz. But, you know, we've got Zoom now. <laughs> uh, so we can, we can have our Zoom uh, sharing moments with, with friends and family. And I think a lot of people are starting to 
reach out to friends that they maybe have not reached out to uh, previously, and 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 value things uh, that they potentially weren't valuing before because of the fact of this uh, this this threat um, and this this sense of danger. Absolutely, I think that's a key key element of of of, uh, of positive reframing. Any other techniques that you could recommend? Um, yeah, I mean, I think people all have some sense that breathing in certain ways is going to be helpful. Mm. But I, I remember teaching groups on anxiety, and you know, I'd ask people in the group. Sometimes it'd be you know, fifteen people in the group. I'd say, "Look, what do you think might be helpful that you could do for your anxiety?" And write stuff down on the on the, on the whiteboard, and they'd all say, "Oh, you know, breathing, deep breathing." Um, you know, meditation, that kind of thing. And I'd say, okay, that's interesting. Um, how many of you in this room actually practice deep breathing? And almost always, no hands went up. And this, when, you know, I did groups for years. So it's really interesting. We kind of, we all like to sort of talk about things with, without actually doing them. So yeah. really, really, really do this. Start breathing in a rhythmic, even way through the nose, if you can, and just so in and out through the nose. So yes, ways. okay, keep, yeah, keeping the mouth closed. Put the tongue to the roof of the mouth, just touching the back of your top teeth, because that tends to stops what we call sub vocalizations. You know, we're we're a society that's based around you know chatter and talking. You know, we say, oh, you know, this person's got a really really good mind, you know, but what we're saying is they've got a good mouth often. So, you know, this is an opportunity to shut, shut that part of the brain down because that's not really where the solutions are coming from. Yeah. So Einstein famously said, well, you can't solve a problem at the level of thinking that created it. And we're always chattering and talking. And so, and, and, you know, our anxiety is fueled by kind of chatter and internal dialogue. So, Shut the mouth, put the tongue to the to the roof of the mouth, find your natural rhythm, and then just tune in. Notice how that starts to modify your your physical sensations, which it will. It will do. Breathing is very powerful. Many techniques. Incredible, you can do. yeah. And then if you want to do a deeper dive on that, what you can do is something called box breathing. Very simple. It just means that you're going to breathe in, let's say to a count of four. So breathing in, one, two, three, four, holding that for a count of four, two, three, four, and then breathing out, two, three, four, and then holding it, hold, just holding that for four, and then repeating that pattern. Very simple. So four sides to that box. So that's something yeah. to, to try. Do it every day uh, for, for a, a couple of minutes. Make an agreement with yourself. Say, look, every day after I've brushed my teeth or I've had my tea or my coffee in the morning or I've spoken to my friend on the phone, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do that for two minutes. And then when you've completed that, irrespective of the outcome of that, say, well, well done, you know, I did that. Well, it sounds a bit strange, but that's a way of locking in habits. What, what is, not just doing it, but congratulating yourself for doing it? Well, yeah, yeah. So having a prompt, so doing it immediately after an already established habit. So, you know, right. if you brush your t teeth twice a day, 
well, you can stack another habit on t- new ha- a new behavior on top of that. Um, so you've got that, uh, you have that prompt there. Also, we're going to make it manageable. So that's why I said two minutes, not 25 minutes. Yeah. So it's pretty achievable. You've got a yeah. high degree of uh, the possibility of success there. Uh, and then the celebration afterwards is, well, that's about positive emotion because real change in behavior happens when we're feeling good about it. Yeah. Just repeat that sentence, because I think it's very important that every sure. listener hears it. Real change in behavior happens when we're feeling good about it. That is, I think is, I think that that is the, the, the most important thing here, because there's so much negativity going around. And when you're feeling positive about things, you will make the changes. Um, and uh, yeah, that fundamental, fundamentally important. Absolutely. Yeah. So there is a little bit of the... Um, fake it till you make it in this, you know, because sure. maybe afterwards we don't feel good about it, you know, and the mind's got all kinds of things to say about it. And, you know, here we go with the negative interpretations, you know, well, anyone could do that. Oh, this isn't going to help me. You know, what's the point in doing this? I can't be bothered. I'd rather do this or any, you know, any number of, of kind of negative, disapproving, judgmental, um, self-blaming things that we might have going on in our minds you know but that's okay allow those thoughts to be there can't always change those but have the celebration anyway sounds silly but you know suck it and see do that for a week or two and you may be surprised Uh, it's uh, unbelievable as you say uh how much of a hack uh breathing is to 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 your whole physiology it's incredible we all know it. We all talk about it. It's free. It's simple. It's easy. You can do it absolutely anywhere without anybody even knowing you're doing it. And yet, and yet we, you know, even myself, like I don't do it enough. So yeah, yeah. Don't, don't blame yourselves for not doing these things because that's in the nature of being human. You know, we're built for survival, not happiness, you know? So we're, we're, inclined towards you know eating food if it's in front of us because you know biologically part of our mind doesn't know that we're not going to starve yeah and we're not built for you know doing the things that are best for us um but that's okay so let's make this process manageable by by doing you know two minutes of something here two minutes of something there you know after i i've done this you know, an already established habit, brushing my teeth, going to the bathroom, I'll do something else, new behavior, you know, two press-ups or, um, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever you, behavior you want to change, you know, eat. Well, I think it's, I think, I think it's actually an important uh, thing. And I'll, I'll add one in here as well, which is how many people are leading a very sedentary lifestyle at the moment, you know, stuck indoors, feeling like they're sort of legitimized or justified sort of laziness in a way. Um, and I think just just doing some exercise, um, I'll throw that in, I think is a very, very, and we all know the benefits of exercise. So, I mean, we don't have to go Absolutely. on, on and, and, you know, make some incremental changes, you know, and if you are being a bit of a couch potato, you're having, you know, you're having too many cakes or drinking that extra glass of wine, you know, that's, that's human, you know, we're going through a very unusual situation. So 
again, don't beat yourself up, but just see if you can, if you can kind of, um, you know, just open the door a little bit by, by trying, you know, some of the things we're talking about here. Okay. So, so we talked about, um, having a moment with yourself to, to, to ask the question and allow your mind to enjoy the process of thinking about what positives can come out of this situation and the value of things that maybe are being revealed to you. Secondly, you're talking about uh, breathing techniques. Third thing we're talking about is just general sort of, I would say, lifestyle things that you sort of, you forget because you're boxed into your own head, but like exercise, getting some fresh air, being a bit, you know, healthier in terms of your diet, getting some sunlight, those kinds of things. Just we'll throw that under the term sort of general lifestyle, um, you know, habits. Anything else? You talked about meditation before. Is is that something that yeah. you want, you want well, to talk about a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I mean, meditation is is great, um, but the problem is that people, the people that would most benefit from it really struggle with it they can't do it or they don't want to do it so again i would say if you want to meditate we'll start slow and start with five minutes um, and then lock that in in the same way um we we talked about the breathing so and what rec what would you recommend because a lot of people ask me this you know what how would i start meditating what you know some people say focus on the breath some people say become a, a become just an observer a non-judgmental observer it doesn't matter you know what you're thinking or seeing sure. or well, hearing yeah. what what do you think look the breathing is always there so that's a good thing to to start with and you know in mindfulness based cognitive therapy and which is based on the uh, vipassana tradition it's it's mostly about noticing the feeling of breathing and um that's something to to tr to, to, to do uh, if you really struggle with that well you know yoga's meditation too mm -hmm. yeah so you can do some movement and there's plenty of videos online for that yeah um yeah i'm going to be putting some stuff on my website at some point um okay know. cool uh, by the way, everybody who's listening, I'll, I'll make sure that Sasha's details are are in the description of whatever, wherever you're listening to this so that you can uh, reach out to him and, and see uh, see what he's putting out in terms of uh, his website as well. OK, so so meditation, breathing, some good uh, lifestyle choices. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to go run a marathon, but but, you know, just sort of some some added elements just uh, to your lifestyle. And then positive reframing of, 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 of the situation. Absolutely. It, you know, asking yourself some, some sensible questions and, and, you know, giving yourself time to answer them, maybe writing them down, asking, well, look, is this really all bad? Is there anything, is there anything good that can come from this? Um, you know, what can I do today? That might be a little bit different so that tomorrow I can look back and I'll feel good about that. Um, I'm just trying to think about the, I mean, so many questions we could ask ourselves. So seeing progression, because, because I think a lot of people are feeling, I guess, in this lockdown that every day is just bleeding into the next and, and they've sort of lost all sense of time and purpose, etc. So just sort of giving yourself little activities that you can look back on, uh, the next day. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, make, make time for quality time with family members and friends you know so 
You may be living in, uh, you know, cheek by jowl with your family, but try to have quality time. So, well, at this time, we're going to do this together, or we're going to make a, a nice dinner, we're going to set the table and, you know, really share that experience. Um, yeah, so make, make, make an occasion of things. Yeah, create events. Create events. Marks that Absolutely, yeah. And also the uh, something else we haven't talked about is, you know, maintain good humor. Yeah. And, you know, it, share, share those memes and laugh and joke about things. You know, be a bit ridiculous. Fundamental to that means yeah. being very careful about how much news you watch, Abs- I would guess, right? Well, yeah, I would suggest in some cases for some people turning it off altogether, you know? Um going on <clears throat> going on a media fast it's amazing the benefits that that can have for people who are really quite un, quite unwell and also for people who are high functioning if they stop watching the news they start to feel a lot better they feel freer they feel more in control um they're more able to take responsibility or at least scheduling it you know like you know if, if you're not going to go on a complete fast then say right these are my channels of choice yes you know and choose wisely people but these are my channels of choice and i'm gonna watch the news at these two times in the day for no more than whatever yeah. half an hour or something that way you if you feel you want to keep up to date with what's going on you can but you don't have to feel like it's it, it's i think that the key here is active versus passive you know i feel like so many people are being sort of uh, narrated to and they're just sort of you know addicted to you know the latest headline that pops up on your phone or whatever it might be and they're, they're passively receiving as opposed to you know actively sort of seeking out the information that you want to seek out and then distancing yourself yeah. from it it's taking back control assuming responsibility and asking yourself look who's Who's running your life? You know, is it Google, Facebook, and the BBC, or is it you? So, you know, if, if you're not if you're not controlling the show, someone else is going to do that, and then they're going to do that with their own agenda, whatever that is. Selling, you know, selling newspapers, selling stories. Sure. Okay. Well, there's plenty to to get uh, our teeth into there. I think that I read you that that very long list before of of things that. Uh, that I, I was thinking could be the negative psychological impact. So just sort of reframing them uh, myself, like we talked about the fear and stress of illness. Well, I think that we talked about it is that can be reframed into uh, an understanding of the uh, importance and value of your life. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, in terms of hacks, if we're, if we're feeling, um, you know, very afraid of death and dying, well, you know, maybe that's because we're really concerned about health and healing. Exactly. And then we can start to build healthy beliefs. It's like, well, you know, if I'm if I'm so frightened of dying, it's probably because I care about health and healing and being becoming stronger, being more resilient. And then we can start to build thinking around that and change the focus. And that's not being avoidant. You know, it's it's constructive. Because, you know, if you think, well, hold on a second. I'm, you know, I'm petrified of dying. It's like, well, let's focus on what I can do about my health. Maybe I need to go in the garden and get some vitamin D. Maybe I do need to start doing more gardening and, and, and start, you know, drinking more water and practicing, you know, gratitude. Well, that's a great thing to do for, for negative yeah. emotions. Yeah. Um, sure. Being, you know, practicing the feeling of gratitude, you know, and keep a gratitude diary and, and start to, to write in that every night. Just three things that you're grateful for. Absolutely. 
I think everything here is is take the flip side of the coin, right? The flip side of the coin of the fear and stress of illness is the value of health. Similarly, the flip side to maybe the fear and stress regarding economy is sort of a recognition of the fact that, you know, money doesn't rule your life and that you maybe will start to look at uh, your finances and your economy in a slightly different way. You might uh, change your life's course a little bit. You may start to say, well, you know what, I want to do things that bring more meaning to my life, or you might change your sort of job role, or you, you, you may relinquish that anxiety that comes from being on the being part of the rat race. Absolutely. Right? So, yeah. And, you know, of course, you know, unfortunately, many people are going to lose their jobs. And that's, that's tra yeah. tragedy. Um, but, you know, it, it's trying as much as we can to think constructively, well, what else might I be able to do? It's going to be really interesting to see how many people uh, take this opportunity to develop a different career path Absolutely. or yeah. develop, you know, I want, I wonder if there's going to be a sort of flourishing of c creativity that comes out of, Certainly, yeah. out of this uh, well, I environment. I think there is already, you know, I think being, being kind of locked up, so to speak, um, has given people that, that opportunity. And if you, if you, feel that you can make space for that then certainly do that and if you're if you're a creative person then you know i think it's very important to have that outlet you know so if you've for whatever reason stopped drawing or painting or playing music um you know you may want to ask well you know why did you stop doing that or what's stopping you from starting again absolutely and then the flip side of uh, the isolation and the loneliness is is hopefully cultivating a, a sense of enjoying your own company. Absolutely, you know, yeah. cultivating a sense of self sufficiency of of uh, maybe sort of uh, facing those sort of uh, the chatter in your head and 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 sort of looking at it non judgmentally and allowing it to ex expose you know this sort of. Uh, these these ways that you make yourself unhappy and and uh therefore hopefully enjoy being by yourself a little bit more absolutely yeah i mean i can't remember who said that most of our problems come from being unable to spend even half an hour on, on our own with our eyes closed um you know i think there's a great deal of truth to that um you know i think you know we were talking about meditation earlier and I think, you know, people do struggle with that process often because there's some expectation that they're going to feel immediately calm or that their mind should be clear and, you know, they should, should be experiencing certain positive things very quickly. And of course that doesn't happen because when we sit down or lie down with our eyes shut, then we're exposed to all of our internal demons and all of our personal painful history and all of those nasty imagined futures. And so really, meditation is really quite, uh, can be, bring up a lot of negative emotions, but that's, that's for the good, you know, that's for the good. If we can face that, then we're, we're not running away from ourselves anymore. We're moving towards it. And as we know, in this discussion, we've always been talking about moving towards our fear, moving towards the feared object. And if we move towards ourselves, then yeah, maybe we can shake hands with, hands with ourselves for the first time. Sure.
And similarly, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the issues with uh, relationships, you know, and obviously I've, I, I, I'm very worried about, you know, all of the, the, the abusive relationships out there and, and, and the, the ramifications. But, you know, I guess a positive reframing is recognizing bad relationships. A lot of times we sort of are in relationships we, which may not be healthy for us, but because of our day-to-day, -day, because of all of the distractions, because we're able to sort of go to our work, we sort of don't face them to either realize that they should be things to be walking away from, or obviously uh, even better to resolve issues and, and talk things through and try to uh, foster closer relationships. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, again, it's moving towards the pain, isn't it? That's you know, it, with um, jobs and busy lives, it's very easy to avoid, say, confrontation or, or discussion about things that might not be right in relationships. But yeah, maybe this is a time to, to you know, make make some space for um, speaking, asking um, clearly about um, from from those we care about, those we love, asking what we need, what we want, and then ask, allowing them to to answer those same questions. You know, what do they want? And then listening to that and saying, well, can we, you know, can you negotiate some reasonable outcome there? Um, because yeah. you know, all good relationships are about negotiation, right? Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a whole other conversation, but. Uh, the perpetuation of the idea of some sort of um, Hollywood romantic, endless, eternal love that doesn't require any sort of uh, uh, negotiation or, or, or doesn't require um, a transformation into a more collaborative, um, and it may sound less sexy, but, you know, more sort of companionative. Is that a word? Companionative? I don't know if that's a word. Anyway, uh, it's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating subject, and I think uh, uh, the cause of a lot of uh, unhappy relationships is this is this clinging on to this idea that some sort of passionate love relationship should never ever change from its sort of uh, haloed you know first year. You know, it's a it's a weird thing that we we have embedded in us. Well, yeah. So again, there's so much in our society and culture, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, moving on to the uh, the fear of social closening, as I put it, uh, the flip side of this of this fear of contamination, I think, is clear. As you said it before, you know, I think that we are we need to recognize the importance of human contact, uh, the importance of spending valuable time with you know friends and family. Um, which, you know, while social media, Zoom, Skype has done amazing things, you, you cannot replace, you know, uh, sharing space. I, I just don't think you can replace it. And I think that hopefully people are going to recognize that, maybe put down their phones a little bit more and spend more valuable, you know, real time, uh, physical time with friends and family coming out. Of this. Yeah, I hope so. And I think there's, a, there's plenty of opportunity for... Um, yeah, developing new new ways in which to interact with people or to being being really present. And I think, yeah. I mean, I would imagine the initial effect of being kind of released from this lockdown would be that will be that, yeah, being with other people is going to be very novel. 
But yeah, I think it's potentially an opportunity to do those things you suggested. You know, hopefully we can get on trains and tubes and, you know, look at each other without staring into our into our devices. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I, I hope that there's going to be a rebound effect and that we really are going to sort of embrace the importance of 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 human you know, we are pack animals, you know, being with each other and, and, and socializing and, and, uh, and uh, shaking hands and hugging. And I wonder if there's going to be a, a baby boom after this. Yeah, well, it's quite, it's quite <laughs> I mean, possible, knows? isn't it? Yeah, I mean, of course, at the best of time, it's hard trying to keep um, young people apart. So, yeah, I, who knows what's going to What's going to yeah, happen? You heard happen? about all these secret clubs that are uh, like in Berlin. Oh, really? Okay. They're trying to shut down clubs. Yeah. People are reacting like they need to go clubbing. They need to socialize. They need to. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a interesting reaction. Yeah. Um, mm. And finally, the psychology of the police nanny state, uh, which is obviously a huge, huge discussion. But this idea that, you know, we are being conditioned into uh, um, accepting civil liberties being uh, taken away, even if temporarily, um, and even if you, even if it's for good reason. I think that the flip side of this uh, this this psychology, which is being generated globally, that's you know coming from this media barrage of you know government's pithy lines and sure. all of this sort of. Um, this, as you say, sort of almost hypnotherapy, which is happening. I think that what needs to the flip side of it, the positive reframing of it should be uh, uh, exposure, exposing the fact that there is a narrative here. And you can agree with the narrative or you can disagree with the narrative. You can that's really almost beside the point. But it's exposing the fact that there is no real objectivity here, that everything is subjective and that there are uh, elements of control um, over that narrative across all walks from medical science to politics to media. Yeah, I mean, just looking at it from uh, the perspective of, you know, individual therapy, when I work with clients who are really sort of um, up in arms about the things you've been talking about, I would, again, encourage them to adopt a position of personal responsibility that they don't necessarily need to tune into these things. If they do, they decide when and where they're going to do that. Um, and then also, you know, getting them to take things less seriously. You know, okay, it's on the news. That doesn't mean it's true. Um, that, you know, that kind of thing. And encouraging them to, to you know, to come to their own ideas of what's, what's right or what's um well, i wouldn't use the word true because as you said everything's so up in the air at the moment and even when it's not truth in itself it all depends on perspective right where you're standing you know the same object looks different from different positions absolutely you know? right and trying to trying to define the the fact of that thing is a is a is a, a very slippery slope um, and, and claiming that there is one way of looking at something is also a very slippery slope. And I think that you're right. It's, it's, a, it's about taking back sovereignty over your own ideas, how you disseminate and accept information um, and your uh, mental and physical health. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely right. Yeah. So uh, we've managed to get into quite a few yeah, subjects here. Deep, Thank yeah. you so much. Well, my pleasure. It's a deep rabbit hole, isn't it? 
Oh, there's plenty we can talk about. And uh, obviously, any listeners out there, if you want more conversations with Sasha, then please do let us know and we'll, we'll arrange something. Uh, you know, Sasha is an old school buddy friend of mine. So, you know, we can sit and chat for, for hours upon hours upon hours about all sorts of subjects. But um, I think that we've managed to cover a fair amount uh, today. And, uh, and I'm sure you've got plenty of clients that you need to see. Um, but thank you so much, Sasha, for taking part. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to speak to no, you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Happy to come back anytime. Thanks so much. And as I said, I'll put uh, Sasha's information uh, down in the description of wherever you are listening to uh, this uh, recording. And uh, you can reach out to Sasha if you've got any questions yourself. Yeah. All right, Sasha. Happy to help. I'm going to... Get on with my day. Have a great day. And uh, and uh, I guess I need to send you some tea if you're sipping on uh, yeah. tea bags oh. over there. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about this. What were you drinking? I was drinking a 2020 First Pluck Long Jing, which is a green tea, but it's the first pluck <sighs> of the season. So it's uh, it's pretty special. Okay, yeah. I love me some First Pluck. Let's, let's right. have some of that. I, I'll hit you up <laughs> with some First Pluck. I, I'll, I'll stick some in the for you. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Thanks All right, so man. Much. Take care. Have All a right. good day. Bye. See ya. Bye. 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 Bye.